Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Wir von Enterprise Rent a Car passen unsere Mobilitätslösungen an Ihre geschäftlichen Anforderungen an, wie auch immer diese aussehen mögen. Ob Sie nun stundenweise Autos für Ihr Verkaufsteam brauchen, Wochen-, Monats- oder Jahreweise, Transporter für die Auslieferung Ihrer Produkte oder eine Flotte von Ersatzfahrzeugen für den Fall, dass Ihre Kunden Bedarf haben, Enterprise Rent a Car hat alles, was Sie benötigen. Und mit mehr Filialen an mehr Standorten auf der ganzen Welt sind wir überall dort, wo Sie uns suchen. Bei Enterprise.de finden Sie alles, was Sie brauchen. Julie, this is amazing. We've just travelled for hours down this very long but very beautiful river in Gabon, in West Africa, and it's just glorious. It's the most beautiful, fast-flowing, quite wide river. There's oh, there's vegetation everywhere. There's lush trees. There's so many, like million shades of green everywhere. It's just amazing. But the reason I'm so excited right now is because we've just moored up in this little boat opposite a little island and there's three gorillas just opposite us. Our planet is a vibrant, busy, beautiful place and there's always something to see. Our sensors allow us to perceive and interact with the world, but they can only take us so far. I'm Ben Garrett, Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of East Anglia. I specialize in how our group in the animal kingdom has evolved and adapted over time. I'm fascinated by how the world around us has shaped us and how we interact with our surrounding environments. At the very forefront of this are our senses, that collective of sight, smell, taste, hearing and touch. In this series, I want to find out not only how our senses allow us to understand and explore what's around us, but how we might borrow from nature and harness and develop technologies and maybe even redefine what it means to see, hear and feel along the way. When you think about it, the chances of us seeing anything are astronomically small. Light that may have taken millions of years to travel here from galaxies far, far away has to first reach your eye and pass through a clear dome called the cornea. The light is then bent to create focus. Light then passes through the lens, a clear inner part of the eye. When it finally hits a light-sensitive layer at the back, the retina, highly specialized cells turn the light into electrical signals, which then travel along the optic nerve to the brain. It is here where these signals are turned into the images you see. Your eyes really are incredible and are the culmination of over half a billion years of evolutionary change. But let's not get too hasty. They're good, but they're not that good. Because there are plenty of species able to see far more of our world than we can. Two animals that fascinate me are bees and mantis shrimps, both which see in extraordinary ways. So I went to meet someone who knows a lot about bees. Professor Lars Chitka specializes in the sensory and behavioral ecology of bees at Queen Mary University of London. Lars, 
for so many of us, we see bees as part of our everyday lives. They're buzzing around, and whether we like them or not, they're, they're something that we are very familiar with. But what's unusual, I guess, that most people don't appreciate is that they see the world very differently to us, don't they? Indeed, they live in an entirely alien world, if we judge it from the perspective of our sensory systems. So they can sense the magnetic field of the Earth, they have sensitivity to electric fields, and their color vision is entirely different in that they can see ultraviolet light, they can see patterns in flowers where we see none. So where we see a homogeneously yellow flower, a bee might see two colors, where some parts reflect ultraviolet in addition to yellow, and others don't. If I'm understanding correctly, and they're seeing patterns and colours in flowers that we don't see, what are they using that part of their visual spectrum for? Bees, unlike us, in addition to seeing ultraviolet light, they can also see polarised light, the direction in which light swings, which we can visualise with special filters that allow just some directions of polarised light through, but we can't otherwise see it without technology. Is this unique to bees? Are we just seeing this, uh, this ability to see the world differently to us in the bee group, or do we see this across other invertebrates? Sensitivity to ultraviolet light is much more widespread than one might imagine coming from a human perspective. To our knowledge, all invertebrates, or at least all insects and arthropods and crustaceans, can see ultraviolet light. Uh, so can many vertebrates, in fact. Birds... Um, reptiles and so on. Many species have ultraviolet sensitivity. We are, in a sense, unique in that we cannot see this dimension to the visual spectrum. There are some animals out there that have wholly different color vision systems, most notably the famous mantis shrimps that have 12 color receptor types, not just ultraviolet, but also see the entire spectrum up into the red and they have a completely different system of exploring the coloured world. It's fascinating, but it must be complex for you, as, as only a human, to be able to study something with such a complex visual system. Indeed it is complex, and it's, it's difficult to, or impossible to indeed imagine what it might be like to see the world from the cockpit of a mantis shrimp, or indeed a bee. It's not all just glimpsing into the mysterious world of some of our most iconic garden inhabitants, because there are numerous ways we are seeing parts of our world and beyond that are usually hidden. And in this series, that's what our focus is all about, exploring how technology and adaptations in the natural world could not only help extend our senses, but maybe could add a few extras even. One piece of research I've been a part of, among the first of its kind, is looking at how we can use an area of the light spectrum, called infrared, to assess the mental well-being in some of our nearest living relatives in the animal kingdom. I've got to ask, Julie, as, as happy as I am right now, why have we just travelled four and a half thousand miles to see <laughs> these gorillas? That beautiful specimen out there, that silverback, I've known him since he was seven years old. Professor Jilly Forrester is a comparative psychologist at the University of Sussex. We want to make sure they're absolutely safe and they've gained the skills to be successful in the wild. From my point of view, they look pretty healthy right now. But you want to go a step beyond that. You want to look at their well-being, right? I do, I do, because even when they look 
beautifully healthy doesn't always mean they're going to survive in the wild because we can't ask them how they're feeling, um, ask them if they're happy or sad or stressed, but their bodies can sometimes give those things away to us. So we can take different kinds of measurements from them that doesn't involve us having to go and take samples, uh, blood or urine samples, blood samples and urine samples will take a while to process and they're not immediate. Like they're not about this current situation that we're seeing here right now in front of us, right? We're trying to develop some new approaches to assess their mental well-being. And that's what we've got here between us. You've got this thing that looks like it looks like a slightly fancy handheld camera with one of those sort of posh lenses on, but, <laughs> but nothing more. How are we using that? So this is a thermal imaging camera, and it allows us to not only get the normal video that you would take of, of individuals that you wanted to look at, but it also reads their body temperatures. And by that, you mean we all generate heat. I mean, right now, I'm, I'm admittedly, I'm, I'm quite warm right now in, in, in the tropics. <laughs> but you're looking at the temperature generated from within the body, which changes, yeah? That's right. I mean, we, we all have a core body temperature as great apes. So we all know that that's a really stable thing and it goes up if we're ill. But it can also fluctuate a little bit when we're stressed. So Ben, can you see um, the scale here on the side? Mm -hmm. So so that's got the whole spectrum of colors. And, and right up at the top there, it goes kind of from um, a really bright red into white. That's our hot zone. Okay. And you can see that it's got yellows and oranges and, and reds, and as you say, the white there. Now looking across onto the rest of that screen, I can see patches of white, especially around the faces of, of, of her a little bit, but he's most in focus there. He's got white bits around his eyes and, and, and around his mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so these are the areas that we know when you get excited and you've got a rise in arousal levels that these will really start to glow. So we, we want to take this away to the lab and we'd want to extract all the actual data from the camera and do some analyses to see whether or not there's a real big change there. But yeah, absolutely. You can see the fluctuations in his temperature as he's doing these different behaviors. This is genuinely a really invaluable tool that will enable you, me and conservationists out there to hopefully carry on these reintroductions with great apes who might otherwise really suffer from stresses which might jeopardize reintroduction programs but ultimately might actually cause mortality. We've learnt how thermal imaging helps us see things in the body that x-ray can't tell us and how it can be used to reveal the stress levels of primates without the need for invasive techniques. Jilly's work could potentially have huge impacts for animal conservation in the future. But I've also been learning about another type of technology, one that combines both the ability to see the hidden patterns around us, as I saw with Lars, and being able to peer beneath the surface to see what's going on unseen, as with Jilly and her work. On a snowy day in mid-February, I made my way up to County Durham to meet archaeologist Dr Brendan Wilkins from Dig Vet Shovel and Trowel to unpick the layers of human history. But this new technology is changing all that. There's only so much we can see from our current viewpoint, and even if we reach the dizzying heights of six feet or more, we're still pretty close to the ground. But if we were to take a bird's eye view, then look down, the land beneath us spreads out and previously hidden details and landmarks become clearer. Brendan, we've spent a lot of time together over the years. We've 
I mean, I've seen you at uh, an abbey in Suffolk mm-hmm. exploring the concept of a ghost dog. Yes. We, we've dug up mammoths in Swindon. Sure. So we've had some adventures together. Yes. But right now, we're in the middle of a windswept, rainy field, moments away from what might be a blizzard, next to the A1. Yes. Joined by some sheep and gulls. Uh-huh. And I'm cold and wet. I know, I know. Believe it or not, this is one of the most important medieval sites in the whole of County Durham. This is a medieval bishop's palace, and right in front of you, where you can see that unassuming pile of rocks, that was the Great Hall, um, what would have been an area of feasting in the 12th century, and this was really the heart of of this site. Well, you say that. Can we go jump in that hole just for a second? And You can paint that picture in a moment for me. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, that's better. Oh. That shelter's a little bit more here. Yeah. And I'm being a little bit disparaging. I mean, it is a really lovely site to visit right now. Yeah. But I guess what I'm getting at is it's hard to visualise what it would have been like. Had you not been here with me, I would never have understood this was a point of splendour and grandeur. And I'm suddenly imagining fat abbots visiting <laughs> the <laughs> bishop <laughs> and feasting. But yes. to understand that, it's taken, presumably, a huge amount of time and effort to unravel that archaeology traditionally. So really what we, we used to be limited in terms of what we could see was essentially where we put our trenches. But now with new techniques of uh, satellite imagery or, or LIDAR, it's almost as though it allows us to dig without digging. LIDAR, or light detection and ranging, is a method of scanning the landscape using a laser, often flown from a plane or drone, to collect measurements. It calculates how long it takes for beams of light to hit a surface or object and reflect back to its source. With these measurements, we can build 3D maps of the environment below, even revealing things completely invisible to the human eye while just walking in a landscape. It really brings out and teases out um, all the connections between places um, and allows us to create a, a fuller understanding of what's going on on the ground. Um, so it's been an absolute godsend. It's a, it's a quiet revolution that's been taking place in archaeology. You said something a moment ago about looking for new sites. I guess in many ways this allows you to look and see the world around you in a way that we couldn't before in places that you typically couldn't access. Yeah, absolutely. Or even on landscapes that are restricted, either because they're controlled by landowners or or you just simply can't get to them. But in terms of finding sites and finding features from LiDAR, that's very much a... um, uh, something that anyone can learn how to do. You could pretty much pick these skills up in uh, a six-week course, and in fact, we've built one of those exactly for people to do. And that's amazing, onboarding people who typically wouldn't be able to get into this area mm. through traditional, conventional uh, ways is something that you really focus on, and I guess LiDAR helps onboard people. Yeah, it brings people along. It's the, it's the, uh, the, the gateway drug to archaeology, getting people really, really excited. And people think that they may just do a little bit on, on a night and then they find themselves um, researching that and going for a bit more. And be- before we know it, people are spending pretty much all of their time just focusing obsessively um, on, on LiDAR analysis, and it's wonderful. I'm going to use that as a point to say I don't think I'm cut out as an archaeologist. I'm cold and wet. Can we go find somewhere warmer to look at the LiDAR? Well, we have fair weather archaeologists, you know, and uh, yes, we can certainly do that. Okay. <laughs>
Brendan has so far showed us how we could use LiDAR to see things in a landscape that were previously invisible. But he's also been part of developing a program that teaches non-archaeologists to understand the data provided by LiDAR. Well, it's definitely warmer <laughs> in the pub. Um, <laughs> but it does give us an opportunity to really explore the application of LiDAR. So I'm hoping you can show me what it looks like when you can use LiDAR at that site where we just were. Absolutely. We'll not find a place to do it, I think. <laughs> and really this shows that it can literally be done from anywhere. We say the comfort of your own armchair, but comfort of your own armchair in a pub, I mean, how much better can you get? So you've got your laptop. There's yeah. nothing more fancy than that right now, so yes. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what you've got on here and yeah. uh, um, what, we can, what we can look through. So you can see a big chunk of the UK that's been overlaid with a grid system, um, a different layer of the, of the software here. And I can see quite locally where we are and where we were this morning. So I, I guess I click on this square? Yeah, let's, let's click on that. Let's see what happens. So we've zoomed in to the area exactly where we were. Where and we it's... Look, instantly what you can see is that little area that I sort of mockingly said this is where the, the sheep live now. Yeah. It was part of a line of, of built. I mean, this, this outline of this, this square building above that, I didn't see any of that earlier. And, yeah. and this great hall is much, much, it's much greater, much more large than, than I'd imagined. Exactly. Isn't it wonderful? It yeah. all just picks itself out. So over this um, study area of some 220 square kilometres, we knew that we had 4,000 sites that archaeologists know about in our historic environment record. Now, after our project, which lasted some eight weeks, we'd found a further 4,000 sites. It was tremendous. It's a massive step change for our database and a massive step change for archaeology. It's great. I'm, I'm going to say but. But suddenly... There's twice as many sites, and suddenly there's exponentially more people involved, and suddenly there's more work to be done. So it's great. There's a lot more work for you now. Um, but it does mean that we have to rethink what an archaeologist does. What does archaeology do? Even in a landscape like Brendan's site in Durham, LiDAR has helped reveal thousands of features we didn't know were previously there. What, to the eye, appears just like everyday farmland is instead revealed as the grand home of some of our ancestors. But this technology hasn't just been flown on our own planet, but on others too. As Professor Emma Bunce, who focuses on planetary plasma physics at the University of Leicester, told me. There are some really interesting examples of how LIDAR, or as I would know it, laser altimetry, is used to study bodies in the solar system. And that goes from our moon, uh, Mars, Mercury, and in future, Ganymede, which is one of Jupiter's moons. What kind of light-sensitive instruments do we find on satellites? A spacecraft will typically have a range of instruments that actually cover a really broad range of the electromagnetic spectrum in order to answer specific science questions that we have about those bodies. We can also use other areas, I mean, as we've been talking about, LIDAR, laser altimetry, and possibly the near-infrared window for, for planetary missions. But we can also use uh, radar, so that's similar to LIDAR, but uses radio waves. 
And there we would be using a radar, say, to look through a body that has a really thick atmosphere like Venus uh, or Titan. And I can go on. We can use ultraviolet. We can use infrared. You can see the aurora in ultraviolet wavelengths. And that's where the atmospheres are being lit up by energetic particles interacting with, with atmospheres. And UV um, images or spectrometers can, can measure that aurora. We can see features of the planets that we just simply otherwise can't see. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is looking at the aurora in outer planet atmospheres. And if you train your telescope to look at Jupiter or Saturn, you can't see those aurora. Uh, but by tuning an instrument like on the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, to the ultraviolet wavelength, you can suddenly see the very powerful and dynamic auroras in the outer solar system. We've learnt how LIDAR is revealing to us so much about the world we live in, helping us see into our own history or the history of other planets even. It's helping us understand the universe and our Earth better. But could it go beyond this and become a tool for our future? Someone who's been thinking about the ultimate potential of remote sensing technology is Professor Chris Fisher, founder and director of the Earth Archive, from Colorado State University. While excavating in Mexico in 2007, Chris discovered a lost Mayan city, covering an area the size of the city of Bath, deep in the overgrown Central American forests. We discovered this settlement that was just massively bigger than what, what we had expected. And it didn't fit current models for societal development in this area. It was... It was kind of very confusing. He could see something out there, but didn't have enough evidence yet to understand the true depth of his discovery. And his team just didn't have the labour power needed to reveal more about the site. Realising it would take the rest of his career to uncover this ancient city in the traditional way, he instead turned to LIDAR. To, to try to get a better sense of what, of what was there. I didn't, I didn't expect it to work as well as it did. And by the time I looked at my first visualization from that flight, I almost started crying because I was like, wow, in 45 minutes of flying, we've accomplished what would have taken decades to do using traditional methodologies. And I, and I wish I could say like instantly, oh, a light bulb went off over my head and I'm like, this is a paradigm shift. It's going to change everything. But I'm just not that smart. So it took me a little while to kind of figure out, you know, the implications of, of what we were seeing. Um, but, but when I did, I, I quickly came to understand that not only did this transform my own work, but it was going to be transformative in a much broader sense. It was a scientific revolution. And I guess, as you say, it allows you to look at places that are heavily vegetated. But as you and I are discussing now, already in my head, I'm thinking you've got areas that are flooded, potentially. You've got areas that are, that are hostile to work in, such as deserts or high altitude, places that you can't spend weeks or months or years in. And yet, if you drop a team in for, as you say, 45 minutes or so, and you get decades of work, suddenly the places that you can work must be opening up to you and your colleagues as well. The, the exciting thing for me is on the, the you know, what, what these data can contribute to the, theor our theoretical understanding of, of ancient civilizations. And so previous to LIDAR, you know, our grand theories, our 
presuppositions about how things operated in the past are all built on a handful of case studies because it took so long to generate the data. But Chris was keen to go one step further. There were layers of data he was gathering that weren't relevant just for his study. In his site in Mexico, he could see every tree, every rock, even basins of water invisible to us. Could this information be useful to other researchers too, he wondered. But all of that stuff that I remove are the careers of hundreds of other scientists that are studying individual trees, forest composition, fire characteristics, fuel loads, carbon, topography, geology, etc. That makes these LIDAR records the ultimate conservation records. His thinking is that it might act as a permanent Earth record before climate change leads to the change and loss of many landscapes. A true-to-life 3D model of Earth's health in the 2020s. And if you put that together, our Earth is changing so quickly and it is so poorly documented that if we were to scan the entire Earth's surface using LIDAR, it would be this amazing digital con uh, contribution that would feed generations of scientists. It would provide a digital record of what the Earth looks like today for our grandchildren's grandchildren, because the fact is they're going to inherit a very different world. That, that's, the, that's the key to this project that we call the Earth Archive. Okay, you may not have had your initial paradigm shift when you mentioned your story before, but you've just given me one there. If you can map every tree on the planet, it allows us to redefine how we tackle conservation, how we look at habitat management, and there's a really exciting prospect there. How, how realistic do you think this, this dream is for, for you and your colleagues? People have called this a moonshot idea. I, I don't think it's a moonshot idea. I think it's totally doable. We have the technology, getting all the permissions and the social stuff. That's the, the real, that's the hardest part. Chris's idea might seem ambitious, but it shows how the power of remote light sensing could become an integral tool within many different fields of study. But his ambition to extend our view, to help us see further and beyond our current abilities, could be part of a revolution for our sense of sight. But we've only been able to see half the picture. Now, whether we're taking inspiration from alien-looking marine shrimps or harnessing invisible parts of the light spectrum, we're able to see stress in critically endangered species, explore long-lost medieval palaces, and even glimpse distant extraterrestrial planets. Technology is being developed and harnessed to allow us to see more, to see better, and to see further than ever before. In the next episode of Super Sensors, I explore how bioacoustics is helping us hear what's actually going on beneath the waves and harness the power of hidden auditory spies to see whether I can discover who or what is digging up my garden each night.
Wir von Enterprise Rent a Car passen unsere Mobilitätslösungen an Ihre geschäftlichen Anforderungen an, wie auch immer diese aussehen mögen. Ob Sie nun stundenweise Autos für Ihr Verkaufsteam brauchen, Wochen-, Monats- oder Jahreweise, Transporter für die Auslieferung Ihrer Produkte oder eine Flotte von Ersatzfahrzeugen für den Fall, dass Ihre Kunden Bedarf haben, Enterprise Rent a Car hat alles, was Sie benötigen. Und mit mehr Filialen an mehr Standorten auf der ganzen Welt sind wir überall dort, wo Sie uns suchen. Bei Enterprise.de finden Sie alles, was Sie brauchen. Thank <laughs> you.